Hello, friends. Welcome to the Nexus Podcast. I'm your host, James Dice. Each week, I fire questions at the leaders of the smart buildings industry to try to figure out where we're headed and how we can get there faster without all the marketing fluff. I'm pushing my learning to the limit, and I'm so glad to have you here following along. This episode is a conversation with Luis Munger, Vice President of Digital Buildings at Schneider Electric. We talked about Luis's unicorn-like career, which started as an electrician and moved through roles in facility management, property management, and more before her role at Schneider. I loved hearing her advice to other women working in the smart buildings industry. Then we dove into Luis's perspective and Schneider Electric's approach to sustainability, open systems, the MSI role, the independent data layer, and finally, engaging with the startup ecosystem. So without further ado, please enjoy the Nexus podcast with Louise Munger. Hello, Louise. Welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you on. Can you start by introducing yourself? Hi, James. Well, thanks for having me. My name is Louise Munger. I'm the Vice President for Digital Buildings at Schneider Electric in the Pacific Zone. All right. And where are you located? So I'm based in Sydney. Um, I'm, I've been in Sydney for 15 years. I'm a Perth uh, girl, so born in Western Australia um, and moved to Sydney after, uh, after a stint in London. So have, have moved about a bit. Okay. And, and what does the, your, your region at Schneider, what does that include? Yep. So Vice President, uh, Digital Buildings. So Digital Buildings uh, is a digital and automation and technology partner um, in the built environment. So we service customers in real estate, in healthcare, in data centres, in infrastructure, like train stations and airports. And and what countries, what regions of the world does that include? Uh, Australia and New Zealand. Got it. Okay. Awesome. So you have a really what I would call an, an interesting background, especially in our industry. Um, I'd love to hear you take us through how you got to this point, uh, back back to the beginning, if you would. Yeah, yeah. Not by design. So I didn't definitely did not start out with this in mind. When I was 15, we my family moved to Newman, which is in the Pilbara in Western Australia. So it's kind of in the middle of uh, nowhere, if you like, in the middle of the state. It's a 12-hour drive from Perth, which is the nearest big city, and a four-hour drive from the coast. Um, it's a mining town, iron ore mining. BHP is the is the major mining there. Okay. And um, I went to finished high school there. And in a mining town, everyone wants to get an apprenticeship with BHP. That's what they do. So I quickly uh, pivoted my career ambitions from going to university to uh, wanting to get an apprenticeship and uh, I chose electrical because that was what the smart kids went for um, and was successful in getting an electrical apprenticeship. I had no idea at that point what an electrician did. Like I really was extremely naive. I had never done manual arts at school. I had never used tools. Um, And I think at that point, BHP was, you know, early in its diversity ambitions and saw the benefit of bringing women into that workforce, probably a little bit unprepared, to be completely honest, uh, for having women in that environment. But I started my apprenticeship when I was 17 and spent five years uh, working for, for BHP in an iron ore mine, which was good experience, I guess. I took a lot of skills out of that, but it was, you know, challenging beyond belief. And I think that I built a huge amount of resilience in that five-year period that has served me well for my entire career because I figured if I can get through that and learn that and navigate that environment, not just physically demanding, but also the social aspect of that work environment, you know, everything else is a piece of cake. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Do you still draw back on different stories and learnings from from that time? Um, Yeah. And particularly around the the diversity aspect and the inclusion aspect of diversity, Mm -hmm. because you know, that was really diversity without inclusion, if you like. Let's bring women in without really thinking how we integrate women into this workforce in a, in a, in a good way. So, you know, as a result, I had people tell me to my face that apprenticeships were wasted on girls, that it should have gone to a boy, that you don't, you know, women don't stick with the trade and, you know, quite 
full-on opinions thrown at me that, you know, you just wouldn't hear in a workplace in in you know today's environment Mm -hmm. so yeah the inclusion piece wasn't there I think as a result of that that meant I didn't stay with my trade as long as what I could have so I worked as an electrician for three or four years post-trade I went to London and did a stint as a as a sparky in in London and that was my first exposure to real estate and building systems. Okay. So I went from mining, I was working in doing building maintenance on facility management contracts. Basically, back in the day, then you had, you know, every trade sitting around in the basement of a building, just waiting for something to fail to go and fix it. So mm-hmm. there was a plumber, a sparky, an aircon tech, you know, the FM, everyone there. And we'd sit around and mostly I was going around adjusting flickering light tubes. <laughs> for partners. I was working at Deloitte and some law firms and stuff. So it was really just a big focus on customer service. But for me, I um, remember seeing the facility managers and like marking that role in my head at the time thinking I could do that. They're just really telling all of these tradespeople what to do. Mm. You know, maybe that's something that I could do to get off, to get off the tools, so to speak. So when I eventually relocated back to Australia and moved to Sydney, I set out to get a job in facility management. Got it. Okay. And sounds like you did, or that was the next, the next stop. Yeah. Yeah. So I moved to Sydney applied for entry-level roles in FM and got a job working for Johnson Controls in a data centres contract, so as facility, doing facility management in data centres, which was really good experience because I got to understand critical environments and, you know, all of the building systems relative to, to those environments. Did that for a while and then moved into facility management in real estate, so working on the FM contract for AMP Capital. My first job there was actually the relief facility manager. So my job was to go around and cover people's annual leave. But again, like, you know, just by, you know, a bit of luck that that role then enabled me to get exposure to 30 or 40 buildings in the space of 18 months. So rather than going in as an FM and doing a single building and, and, you know, getting to know that one building, I got to work in assets from the big premium assets to, you know, smaller fringe assets to office parks to logistics and industrial buildings. And I think, again, that diversity of experience really helped to accelerate my career at that point too. Got it. All right. And then where did you go from the facility management side of things? So I was doing roles on that FM contract and I remember the national operations manager for AMP Capital took me out for a coffee and they had a role as the regional operations manager, so a state kind of manager for FM opening up. And he said to me, you should apply for this job. And I said, I'm not old enough to do that job. (laughs) That was my response, which again is another you know, when you're thinking about diversity, both from a generation sense, so early people, early career, but I think also female, people maybe don't think that they can be a role because I haven't seen somebody like them do that role ever. So I had never seen someone in a management position in facilities management as a young woman. I hadn't seen that at that point mm-hmm. in my career. I was maybe 28. And so my response was, I can't do that. In my mind, people were male and over 40 to do that job, right? Yeah. He was like, Louise, apply for the job. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, okay. (laughs) So that got me into AMP Capital. And from there, I had uh, a fantastic 10 years at AMP Capital working as the head of operations and working as the head of property management. Uh, and finally, as the Director for Technology and Innovation. So really had a, a varied career over that decade. Got it. I, I did have a question for you on that time. So you went from kind of like external FM, it sounds like, like a service provider sort of yep. model. And then you went internal FM and then over to property management. Can you talk about that transition and what that required in terms of mm. personal growth mm. for you? I think having the experience being an external FM and then moving into the role as head of operations that oversees that contract, Mm -hmm. I uniquely knew what it felt like to be an FM and to not be included and to not have a good visibility of 
what the you know building owners strategy is and to mm. be treated as um you know at that point i think it was quite a master servant relationship um mm. and when i was then put in a position of being able to influence um the work environment for facilities management i made a conscious decision that those people would be included as a part of our business at AMP Capital mm. regardless of who their employer was and i really strongly believe that the better outcomes for customers are achieved so or tenants are achieved when they see one building management team and this isn't anything new you know i think these days that would be quite a common approach this was say 12 years ago so we really um focused on making sure that those people were included then when i moved into property management uh that was a little bit unusual move i think not always everyone goes from operations mm -hmm. to leading all of yeah. property management leasing customer experience yeah but you know i i guess i applied much of the same approach in that my role was to create the best environment for our asset teams to deliver for our customers and to do that that's around culture it's around defining you know the roles within our structure and who does what and really defining the purpose of why we were there and what we set out to achieve so i you know i applied those types of management practices rather than coming in and saying hey this is general manager you've got 30 years of experience as a general manager of a premium building here's how do you do your job it wasn't yeah it wasn't like that at all um but a great you know we i had a fantastic four years of head of property management it was it was a really exciting time we did some quite innovative things in terms of customer um experience and customer training and really you know put the relationship that our people had with our customer and the connection that people have with the customer at the heart of everything we did so really taking customer service beyond like being responsive or you know getting back to people or being proactive but actually real estate is about relationships with people and it's about building connections and it's about having that connection i think on a um deeper level than a transactional relationship so they were the big transformations that we we undertook during that time got it and and was that focus on the experience and the relationship what brought you into technology and innovation how did that yeah so i amp capital had done a um you know started to do a review of their approach to technology across the whole real estate business both from enterprise technology so you know property and asset management systems um data big data and automation on the enterprise side as well as customer experience technology so mm -hmm. really big thing in retail obviously amp capital being a large shopping center owner and office buildings and as part of that I, we realized that we needed to identify people that understood tech but also understood commercial and the business side of of real estate yeah and we called them purple people so the blending of like red and blue profiles <laughs> that you know that could translate and be these translators to the executive team to our people but also to technology vendors and and bring that together because of my background in facilities management and earlier as an electrician i you know had that purple people criteria <laughs> so i had started to lead more into the asset technology uh, space and was doing you know early days was was uh setting out strategy for you know how we were going to get an uplift in asset tech cybersecurity those types of things and then just really through conversations for career change they were like well you know would you like to take on this role as the director for technology and innovation and oversee our whole program of technology uplift including the enterprise side so i jumped at that i firmly believe in careers that you know they don't necessarily need to be lineal it's not about always getting the next promotion but you know a friend of and mentor of mine at the time said it's a bit more like collecting scout badges or girl guide badges right yeah. <laughs> you want to get the experience so this is your chance to get the the technology badge because yeah you know that is where um you will have a point of difference and be able to add value to organizations you know further on in your career 
so I saw that as as a good opportunity. Plus, it's fun. Like tech's really fun, and in real estate, tech's really fun. So yeah. I was like, "Yeah, let's let's go and do that." That's that sounds like a lot of fun. So jumped into that role, and I guess it was uh, the combination of that twenty years of experience that led to Schneider finding my profile nah, for the totally. role, for the role okay. I'm in now. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I think that's a great piece of career advice, though. Just collect as many badges as you can. I think I specifically stayed at a few jobs too long when I I definitely had opportunities to jump and get a different badge, if you will. Um, Maybe I I need to add that to our, we have a module of our course on career planning in smart buildings, and we need to add some sort of a little lesson on that. Yeah. Uh, Maybe we'll we'll have to pull you in for that uh, and talk about your badges. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So, okay. So you, then you jumped over to, to Schneider. Can you talk about what that role is? And this was like late 2020, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Yeah. So they had, Schneider had reached out to me um, probably about six months. It was probably a six month process of, of conversations and, and recruitment. I was interested initially because look, great role, executive level and the opportunity to really own a commercial piece of a, of a business. So that sort of piqued my interest. But then through that process, I started to research the company and get to know Schneider Electric more. So obviously I have had Schneider in and out of my career since I was an apprentice, right? I remember way back working in mining that there would be quite a lot of Schneider Electric kit. So familiar with the company as an FM, you know, I had worked with them in, in buildings. But as I unpicked what Schneider is today, I was actually blown away by the, um, firstly, the the purpose around sustainability. Secondly, the strong commitment to diversity and could see that that was being led from the very top of the organisation in a very public way. And that signalled to me that they were serious about that. And that was important to me. And, and finally, I could see how much the technology had evolved since I had been, you know, probably more involved in it at a at a system level mm-hmm. and that excited me because I could see some real opportunity there to share that story more in the Australian market. I did have a bit of, you know, I think those moments of when you're looking at jobs, am I technical enough to do this job, you know, mm-hmm. and, and really questioning myself to what extent is a deep knowledge of technology necessary to derive value from it and to help, you know, transform the business and to support our customers in deriving value for technology. So, you know, I really thought about that and realised that the value I bring is actually the diversity of my background coming into this role and the exposure from from being client side and from understanding, you know, from an FM and from, you know, being a technician on the tools. So I have the ability to relate to a really large part of our business from that experience. Yeah. And I believe they call that imposter syndrome. And I definitely yeah. have that. <laughs> yeah. I have that very, very strongly as well. Uh, not just being yeah. on this podcast, but you know, <laughs> the newsletter and teaching a course, it, it goes way, way deep with me for sure. Oh, it's so true. Even coming on this podcast, like I've said to people, oh, I'm going on the Nexus podcast. And there's that real sense of imposter syndrome. Like, am I, you know, do I own, can I own my own place in our industry? And, you know, I do, you know, the, the worry, am I technical enough? Do I know these questions? And I've just got to remind myself, like, my unique ability is actually to sit across this at a much higher, mm-hmm. you know, holistic level and strategic level and to not, to be free of legacy thinking. Like, I think sometimes if you've been too deep in technology or too deep in an industry, um, that you can have legacy mindset and then that can be really hard to change or, or shake that or, mm-hmm. or shape it. And we've got plenty of experts, you know, I've got plenty of experts around me to lean on when I need them. Yeah. Yeah. I like to say like the, you, the whole word holistic that you just said is super important. Not a lot of people understand how everything fits together and how to sort of bring the right stakeholders in at the right time and, and get mm-hmm. the right people on the right page. Mm-hmm. Um, super, super important. What would you say to other women out there that are listening to this that have imposter syndrome um, in terms of how to think about their careers? Mm-hmm. And men, I think men get imposter syndrome too. 
and they're less likely to talk about it or to have that vulnerability to talk about it. Um, I think, like, my advice is always things get easier the more you do them. So I've always taken the approach of saying yes to things, saying yes to podcasts, to presentations, to roles that, you know, maybe didn't seem like an obvious choice or and going into that with a really curious mindset. So a strong belief that I can learn fast. I'm naturally curious. I will read a lot. I will talk to people. I'll ask a lot of questions. And I think that goes a long way to helping you find um, your comfort. And then the other thing is everyone has imposter syndrome. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. So that's why I talk about it quite openly because I think it helps people to see, oh, wow, she's a VP and she's saying that she has imposter syndrome. Like that actually makes me feel better. Um, you know, so I'm quite happy to share that as a, as a way that I feel. Um, and I think talking about it makes it easier for people too. Yeah. Yeah, that's great advice. So can you talk a little bit more about your team and what you guys do in your team? Mm -hmm. So I've got 350 people here in our business in Australia. We have a systems business, so construction, installing new systems into greenfield projects, Mm -hmm. basically. Um, The big projects we're working on, large office towers, um, we're doing Salesforce Tower here in Sydney, Queen's Wharf project, which is a big mixed-use development in Brisbane. We're delivering 17 metro train stations. So there's a new metro system being built in Sydney at the moment. We're doing some train stations, a lot of healthcare, a lot of data centres. Um, We also have a services business, obviously maintenance of our install base, Um, we have a digital solutions team as well that is now looking at how we um, grow our software layer um, and engage with our customers in a digital sense. That includes cybersecurity. It also includes consulting. So more and more we're being asked by our customers to um, play the role of a consultant as such. Um, So we're looking to build out that capability as well. Um, I also cover segments, so healthcare and real estate are segments that sit within digital buildings. Um, and, you know, we have a sales team and, and back office team. So, yeah, quite a, quite a big team. But mm-hmm. what, I, what struck me, I think, when I joined this company was the quality of the people um, and the, the expertise and how, you know, smart our engineers are and how creative they can be. Um, and the real opportunity to uh, unlock, you know, innovation and creative creativity within this business. Totally. And, and you've seen all the other companies like Schneider, right, in, in your career. What do you think sets Schneider apart from other companies like, like it? Mm. Um, Besides, you mentioned sustainability and diversity. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, sustainability, but I think when you say the purpose of sustainability, how does that actually translate into Mm -hmm. offer? And for me, you know, we are much stronger as Schneider when we bring all of Schneider to play, and that includes digital power, that includes microgrids, Mm. um, that includes all of our connected devices and products, and, um, you know, the rise of the prosumer is something we're looking at now, which is, you know, people that will be generating more electricity that they need and how will energy networks evolve and meet that demand. So for me, it's the innovation and the smarts that is going into tackling this, you know, huge problem of the new energy landscape and this massive transition that's going to happen um, as we move to clean energy over the next decade. Um, That focus and our ability to support our customers with that beyond a BMS or beyond an access control system, that is Mm -hmm. where we can really add a whole ton of value. So that's the part that excites me a lot. Yeah, That makes sense. Well, that's an amazing career path so far. I hope hope people listening realize that it doesn't have to be linear, like you said. Um, I'm wondering, when I listen to that, it's an interesting transition from the owner side or the client side back to the vendor side, I say back to the vendor. Most people go the other direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, like we've had people on the podcast before that are sitting in owner roles. 
um, and, you know, came there from the vendor side, you went from the owner side to the vendor side. So mm-hmm. how, how, can you talk about what that experience has been mm-hmm. like and what you've learned? Uh, it's been really eye-opening. I think that working in real estate, you can be somewhat shielded from what happens in the supply chain uh, on projects. Um, smaller projects, you know, you're usually dealing directly with the contractors and the vendors, but on the larger developments, um, you know, there's this whole ecosystem that is working itself out, I guess, dependent on what the procurement strategy that's been set. So I have, you know, realised that if the procurement strategy is wrong, there is a, a lot of risk in the technology not being or not delivering what the owner has intended it to deliver. Um, and starting to see more technology packages being carved out and going direct to builder and bringing that higher up the chain, but not always. Like quite often we're seeing technology packages firstly um, dispersed. So, you know, there's a BMS package, there's an access control package, there's a package for this and that. So the opportunity to, to provide economy of scale or synergy or ease of integrations because these packages are set to a whole different range of subcontractors. Um, but then, you know, you do get into a battle of, of lowest price. And if it's doing that, then there will be scope that comes out in order to, to meet that. And if the requirements and the specification isn't written correctly, then it, I think it leaves open a whole lot of risk. So that's been interesting. I think on the services side, BMS being subbed under mechanical. We look, we work with a lot of mechanical providers and, and have great relationships. But I would say from a real estate owner's point of view, the BMS is the single biggest influence they have over their energy consumption. So having that as a strategic relationship should be an imperative. And we don't always see that. And I think that it's not the um, operations and the technology people that are driving that it's procurement people who are saying hey we can save some cost if we structure it this way and go out to market but um, maybe if that's being decision being taken independently of um, you know the people that own those systems then again are they really getting the best strategic input into into the the long-term outcomes of those systems mm-hmm. and yeah. you, when you're on the owner side it was a little bit more opaque from your position all of those sort of nitty-gritty details of how the systems actually come together is that what you're saying yeah I, look i think we had where i was we had a pretty good handle on it um but i have seen since moving across that that's not the case broadly across the industry and that there is a lack of education Again, it's not so much, you know, your heads of asset technology or your heads of smart building or your even your operations managers. It's more at um, development managers mm-hmm. and project directors and people that actually are really looking at, okay, I've got this, you know, billion-dollar precinct to deliver. That $2 million tech package is almost, you know, nothing to me because I've got this billion-dollar precinct to deliver, but not understanding the criticality of what that system will provide in terms of customer experience, in terms of energy efficiency over the life cycle of that asset. For for me, it's actually raising awareness like beyond the people that are playing with tech every day. I think the people that you talk to, the people that we talk to in the industry inherently get the value of good technology and making those investments. But how do we get project directors and heads Mm. of development and um, you know, other executives to understand that and to equally place that importance on technology would be, I think, a thought leadership piece for the industry as a whole. Absolutely. Okay, so amazing background. I, I want to transition a little bit to sort of where we're at as an industry today and kind of get your perspective, but also get the kind of the approach that you guys are taking to market as as Schneider. Um so can we just start with just brief overview of trends? What are some things that are that are hot on your mind right now as the leader of this this bigger group? So look, the outcomes that are being sought, I don't think have changed significantly in the last three to four years. Sustainability, hyper efficiency, 
resilient, so cybersecurity, but also resilience against climate change and, you know, some things like that, um, and customer experience, there would generally be the themes that our customers are talking to us about, mm-hmm. whether it's commercial real estate, healthcare, transport segment, education, I think it's that's fairly consistent. I would say the big trends that I would see are more complexity, more integrations, therefore more customers looking to standardise and standardisation across portfolios mm. because the overhead of managing if you've got 60 assets and you've got 60 assets all doing it differently, and I'm not talking about the BMS because, you know, all the controls because obviously that will be different, but um, analytics, enterprise software, workflows for, you know, taking data from the building into facilities management, if you're not standardising at that level, then it becomes very unwieldy and you're not going to get the benefit of, of that efficiency. So more standardization, and I think that means more enterprise level software data, obviously, in all of that, data-driven maintenance and, and more automation, um, more AI. Yeah. So that they would be they would be the big themes. And are you seeing like to me when I listen to you here talk about standardization? Um, I'm thinking about like centralized operations groups. Is that mm-hmm. is that a piece of yep. that? Yeah, okay. centralized ops. Um, and then you know, for us, where we've started to support our customers in that. So we have a connected services hub that supports our data driven maintenance. So we have Building Advisor, which is HVAC Analytics, and we have created a hub to give our customers the value of that type of environment without them having to create it so that Mm. if they do have multiple um, assets or portfolios that they can be supported in that hub type environment. I think some customers will build that for themselves and see that as a, if they've got scale, that might make sense strategically, but it doesn't necessarily make sense for everybody to do it. Um, Okay. So it's like combining a bunch of um, sort of super users of the analytics software with some sort yep. of work order or workforce management software? Or how does that, how does that situation work out? So our approach to um, data-driven maintenance and, uh, you know, I loved the podcast you did with Tom, AMP Capital, a few weeks ago. I thought that was really interesting to hear their approach and that standardisation. Um, We've been proactively here in Australia talking to our customers to move them across the data-driven maintenance contracts. Okay. So we, we see that that's an opportunity to help make them more efficient. You know, this is an education piece that we need to do with our customers as well. Some customers are quite sceptical or a little bit um, fearful of the technology. Others aren't technical at all and they want that support. So the way we have worked this out is that we have four different levels of data-driven maintenance contracts. So we have a plus contract, which is just a standard maintenance contract with a little bit of analytics that's native to EcoStructure that will sit there and generate, you know, some extra faults and alarms and support our technicians in knowing where to look and what to fix. Okay. We have a prime contract that customers will have the analytics, but customers will pay for fault rectification. And then we have ultra and enterprise. So ultra is where we use maintenance hours to rectify the faults, you know, similar to what um, we heard on the podcast a few weeks ago. And then enterprise would be a portfolio management. So um, using our connected hub to be really proactive. And we've done that for some universities, particularly where they haven't had deep engineering expertise um, on site and they've really found the value of knowing that where they're checking and responding, you know, and, and monitoring that on their behalf, um, okay. uh, yeah, independently of their staff. So I view data-driven maintenance, it's not a one-size-fits-all approach uh, for customers. I think customers are at different stages of the journey and the industry at the whole has a long way to go in terms of change management. Broadly <laughs> <laughs> yeah. adopted yeah. a long way. Yeah. Hey guys, just another quick note from our sponsor, Nexus Labs, and then we'll get back to the show. This episode is brought to you by Nexus Foundations, our introductory course on the smart buildings industry. If you're new to the industry, this course is for you. 
If you're an industry vet but want to understand how technology is changing things, this course is also for you. The alumni are raving about the content, which they say pulls it all together, and they also loved getting to meet the other students on the weekly Zoom calls and in the private chat room. You can find out more about the course at courses.nexuslabs.online. All right, back to the interview. Yeah. Well, what are some of the obstacles you see? And just to catch people up who haven't listened to that episode with Tom, we're talking about this transition from a schedule or time-based, you know, I'm going to go on site for this many days per month or this many days per year type of maintenance. And when I get on site, I'm going to manually check stuff or do things without, mostly without analytics software. And then this data-driven maintenance, um, again, big deep dive with Tom a couple of weeks ago. We don't go through the whole thing, but that data-driven maintenance is basically using analytics software to kind of take shortcuts in that process and uh, automate some of the checks that might happen and um, really just use the power of the analytics to make that process more efficient. And so what are some of the sort of obstacles you guys see with making that transition? Because I'm assuming a lot of these customers that are doing data-driven maintenance had some sort of non-data-driven maintenance contract before that. Yeah. Um, so the the challenges or the, the change management has to happen uh, in our company, so with our people and our mm-hmm. technicians and, you know, huge digital skills uplift. And as a uh, global company, we're really focused on digital skills and training and evolving our, our workforce in that sense. And then there's a transformation on the customer side as well. Ultimately, you know, what are we trying to do with data-driven maintenance? We, we want humans to make decisions through tech. Tech needs to do what it does best, which is analyse the data. And we need to, you know, get to a point where we're seeing the, the benefit of that. There has been, I would say, you know, technicians sceptical or fearful maybe in the past around what does it mean for my role? And it's really important to communicate the value that this brings to our customers, but also to our company and making us more efficient uh, in delivering better outcomes. Ultimately, you know, we're here to make buildings efficient. We're here for our sustainability purpose and ultimately tackling climate change and data-driven maintenance is a huge part of that. So, working through it through our through our workforce in that sense and the approach that we've found is to actually do this in much smaller groups of people not trying to you know tackle change of a workforce of 200 at a time but actually taking team to techs taking them through them bringing in some really deep expertise in building performance in the connected services hub to support that so recognizing that we're not going to be able to click our fingers and suddenly have you know, all of the technicians in Australia, whether mm-hmm. it's Schneider in the industry, you know, attuned to what data-driven maintenance means. So how do we actually partner them with the right level of support and do that in a centralised way? That's um, really helping us to get some traction as well. I think one of the risks here, and I was talking about this with some of our people the other day, with this data-driven maintenance is that you can get people that get too focused onto asset level rules and asset level issues um, down to the device. So who is actually looking at the whole building performance and how do we maintain that skill? (laughs) Because before they were people, right? We had really great experts that were doing that, you know, building analytics by themselves and by looking in the system and and seeing what works and doesn't, but they had a very good picture of how everything worked together. I think as we do this, like how do we make sure we don't erode that skill of people that understand how the entire system works and how we drive building performance from, you know, a holistic view from the entire building. So we're making sure that we've got some really skilled people in that sense to partner with people and to continue to, you know, uplift capability in that area. That's a great point. And I'm really glad you said it starts with with you guys, right? Because I think there are a lot of service organizations that have kind of said they're not going to take the lead on this. And I think that's a big mistake, right? It's going to end up in their customer wanting to do it anyway, and maybe it's not with with you, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, that's the direction that things are headed. I'd love to hear from you on this, and maybe this isn't something that you guys deal with, depending on how your branches are set up. But one of the struggles I've always had, and this goes back to 
I mean, I was two years out of school pitching analytics to the service group at the mechanical contractor that I was working at. So this was 10 plus years ago at this point. Uh, analytics was like this, you know, newfangled thing that, you know, no one knew anything about. It's much more uh, established as a, as a technology at this point. But back then the struggle was I have a service group in my organization. I have a controls group in my organization. In this case, we had an energy group. And then within that energy group, I was the analytics group, me, my only, my only part, you know, just me. And each of those groups had different quotas. They might have had the same customer, but they had different quotas. They had to hit different salespeople, different groups, right? They were trying to maintain their fiefdoms. And so one of the things, one of the struggles I see with this transition that we're talking about is that the service group kind of views it as a threat and, and just basically wants to keep, you know, selling the thing that they've been selling this whole time. Analytics group is trying to like come in after the fact and like bolt it on top or sell it as a separate thing or, you know, whatever they're trying to do. And I think that is challenging. So I'd love to hear kind of your thoughts on how, from a manager standpoint, how you kind of keep that ship going in the same direction. Yeah. I read a great um, quote last night, actually, a newsletter that hit my inbox, but it had the quote, institutions will try to preserve the problem to which they are the solution, (laughs) which is what (laughs) you're talking about there, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So look, from our perspective, we've been on this journey of change for a long time and ultimately we're here to support our customers in becoming more efficient and achieving their sustainability ambitions and that means using data for maintenance. So it's not about preserving an old business model, it's about adapting and changing these business models to add value to the customers and helping our customers with their new problems. (laughs) Like Mm. for me, it's not actually hey, I've got to, you know, protect how we, you know, do BMS maintenance or whatever. You know, our customers have problems with cybersecurity. They've got problems with enterprise-level data. They've got problems with technology roadmaps. Our customers have huge sustainability and net zero carbon ambitions that they Mm -hmm. need to achieve. So from, from our perspective, there is no shortage of customer problems that we can tackle with technology. And we need to make everything we do as efficient as possible and to move forward with the industry. I think the success, you know, I loved what Tom and co were saying about collaboration um, because I think any technology is only going to be successful if you've got good collaboration and good communication. And that's probably the, the key component. I think that it is made easier with less parties involved who do have aligned KPIs. And, you know, some of the best outcomes I've seen in buildings, I think, is when you've got a very committed facility manager who brings their vendors together from MET contractor, from BMS, if there's an analytics provider or energy management software. But, you know, really good management of buildings who brings that together and says, okay, we want to get this building from five stars to six stars and gives everybody something to work towards because then that team actually becomes about something greater than their Mm -hmm. own patch. So I think there is a bit more that, you know, FMs and building owners can do in, in perhaps giving their contractors, like give them a goal beyond the contract. Like let's set some bold ambitions for our buildings to be more sustainable And, you know, everyone benefits from being associated with transitioning a building, you know, higher up the sustainability chart or rating schemes and things like that. So, yeah, there's approaches that can be taken that will drive better outcomes. Got it. It's fascinating. Okay. So beyond those overall tech trends, there's there's three things I wanted to ask you about when I thought about, I don't think we've had anyone from Schneider Electric on the podcast yet. And it's just always someone a group that I've wanted to have on. You know, we have several members of our, our Nexus Pro community. Several students have come through the course from, from Schneider. Um, so you're speaking from Louise, the expert, but also I want to hear like what Schneider's approach to these different industry issues are. So I want to talk about openness and I want to talk about MSI. <laughs> And I want to talk about acquisitions and partnerships okay. and startups. And these are three issues I had in my mind. And you also said you wanted to yep. talk about them too. Yep. So it's perfect. Uh, let's start with openness. 
And I'm not even sure what the question is that I have, more just Schneider's approach to open systems and kind of where you think the industry's at in terms of open open BMS, open um, whatever other types of systems as well. Yeah, yeah. So firstly, look for a customer to have good visibility, good flexibility, actionable insights. It's going to require open systems. Does the industry agree on the benefit of open? I think yes, but is, does the industry at large agree on the definition of open? No, like potentially not. Me or for us, I think, you know, it should be bi-directional integration and exchange of third-party systems and devices, and it doesn't lock up customers' data in proprietary languages or codes. That's got to be a given. And there's two aspects and like, I won't go deep into technology because that's not my space, but um, there's the openness of the system and how it's designed and the tech and the data and the interoperability and all of that. And then there is the openness of the vendor ecosystem. Hmm. And does the customer actually have choice in terms of who can support and maintain that system? Because there are a lot of, systems that might be open, but ultimately there is a lot of, um, you know, proprietary engineering in it and, you know, are there multiple vendors that can support that? You know, I think any system or software by nature has got to be proprietary in some sense, like companies have their IP, systems need specialised engineering and skills, it's not feasible for REITs to hire, you know, engineers, so there's got to be a level of specialised expertise that support systems but you know for me when I think about open yes it's the data side but it's also what is the network and the vendor network that can support the system so our approach when we talk about open putting aside the tech is also our eco expert program Hmm. so we we you know train and license vendors multiple vendors in BMS in access control in lighting and room control the brand is eco expert but they are you know certified vendors that can service and maintain our system so part of openness is is customer having choice to know that if they do want to do an upgrade there's you know they can have that competitiveness in that and that would be, you know, another element that I think we don't see talked about enough. Yeah, I guess that that's a starting point for the conversation. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And so what you're saying is that within each, you know, region of the world, Schneider has multiple companies that are Schneider's partners that are available to service yeah. or yeah. upgrade or yeah. sell different products. And in, look, in some regions, we only have partners. We don't have a direct business. We've got large direct businesses in, you know, Europe, North America, um, Australia, and they're quite mature and sophisticated businesses. Then there's other regions where um, we only deliver our solutions through a partner network. In Australia, we've got a really strong eco-expert network. We've got, you know, eco-expert vendors in every major capital city, and that does provide an open, open ecosystem for our customers. But look, whatever the design, right, I think systems need maintaining. And, you know, if you want access to the code, you're going to need specialised talent. And that's that's true for software. It's true for systems. It's true for, you know, enterprise softwares. But, you know, how does the customer have choice would be another question I would be thinking about mm-hmm. yeah, when we're looking at that. Yeah. And, and, since you are sort of a little bit distant from the tech, I know that there's a Schneider white paper on openness mm-hmm. that I'll point people to in the show notes, because I know people are going to want, I think, probably more from a technical standpoint, but I don't think we need to go there. And I think that we can go point people towards that that white paper. What about the MSI? So you mentioned a little bit above when we we're talking about procurement, all the issues related to a new development that, you know, not getting technology involved early enough, putting technology underneath the mechanical. Obviously, part of the solution to that is this new-ish role, uh, definitely a lot more popular role of master systems integrator. Um, how are you thinking about that role today? So for me, I like to think of that role as two two parts, the master systems integrator as a consultant, supporting the customer in understanding what they want to achieve from the technology and how 
you know, that architecture will come together and what that will look like. And then there's the master systems integrator as who is actually <laughs> connecting all of the technology and building that. Um, we have an ambition to play in both of those spaces and that's okay. evolved through our business model through customer demand. So we are have been, you know, asked to play that role already on, on lots of projects globally and um, we step into that space, but it's forced us to be um, more deliberate about our offer and, and how we will position ourselves. What's been interesting, I think, procurement models of the past, so we might have played the role of MSI because we came in with the BMS and electrical packages and some digital power and all of a sudden the customers realised, hey, we need some integration and, you know, mm -hmm. we've been there and, and we're ready to do that. Or they've released that package after the technology packages have already been procured and it's made sense because we're there and, and there's a good synergy and, and, you know, we can obviously um, mm -hmm. integrate our technology easily. Then you've got procurement models where, which obviously makes a lot of sense, where the MSI and consultancy piece comes first, the ISP yeah. layer, and then they'll tender the tech packages later. Uh, so, so yes, um, you know, there. Sorry, needs what do you mean by ISP layer? I think that's a. I think I know what that means, but it's. A, I think it's an Australia-specific term. It is, yeah. So the integrated services platform, yeah. So yeah, <laughs> I think it probably is an Australian term. Um, so if the packages are coming later and we want, you know, we're um, positioning ourselves as the MSI, then there does need to be, you know, I do believe that an MSI needs to be hardware agnostic and be able to work with multiple platforms and technology of the customer's choosing. Um, so that's definitely how, you know, we will evolve and begin to our pos position ourselves at that building graph layer. There's obviously a lot of value that a customer can get through ease of integration and, you know, technology if there is that synergy between hardware and and the, um, the graph and the integration layer, but it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. But this is where, you know, for me and particularly in Australia, which is a really sophisticated market when it comes to smart buildings, this is where our business will evolve and continue to grow and drive our capability is in, into playing that role and to, do, to be able to support our customers with more integrations. The benefit we have is that we've got our eco-expert network that can do BMS systems, right? And, you know, can we, do we bring the best value in just doing a BMS system? Yes, we can do it. But when you've got a very, very competitive, you know, procurement chain, you know, the value we bring is when we bring multiple packages of what Schneider. So if we're bringing in digital power, if we're bringing in, you know, the electrical infrastructure, and if we can support in that complexity of at the integration layer, um, there's a lot of transformation that needs to happen again within our business, with the industry at large, mm -hmm. uh, around across all different roles from, you know, sales teams to solution architects, to system architects, to the engineers that are executing. And I think, you know, sometimes we look at this, MSI is a great um, acronym that captures a whole lot of complexity in three letters mm -hmm. <laughs> without actually thinking of, you know, the hundreds if not thousands of people that are actually out in sites and buildings that need to uh, evolve the way that they're, you know, working and approaching their roles. So, yeah. you know, a huge like shift. An entire Nexus podcast yeah. series yeah, yeah. that could go on just as long as we have on only the MSI and all the complexities required there. Um, can we circle back real quick on, so you mentioned the graph, you mentioned integrated services platform. I think that's what ISP stood for. Mm -hmm. um, and you mentioned how you think the role should be hardware agnostic. And my mind just went to how the graph and the ISP are software layers and should the MSI be software agnostic as well, like when you're consulting in that earlier stage of, of a project? What do you think yeah. there? And yeah, like, yes, but I think the MSI consultant and the MSI as the actual integrator aren't necessarily always the same 
person mm-hmm. or company. Mm-hmm. So you will often see someone appointed as that consultant who is an independent, like a true independent. Maybe they work at a company of two or three people, like, you know, they are just there to play that consultant role. And then you've got the MSI, or you can have that consultant role. Look, at the end of the day, we have done that role from consulting through to design and then delivery. And we see more demand from our customers in that space. And there is a need to ensure that customers get the best outcome from their technology if you're that consultant. So the important part in that stage is actually really working with the customer to understand what they want to achieve and not starting with a solution, a product or an offer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. From, you know, whatever lens you're looking at it, right? I think if you're the consultant, then your role is to actually help the customer understand what they want to, what outcomes they're looking to achieve and then working through from there. Cool. So, all right, last topic was um, the start, sort of startup and venture capital ecosystem, all of the different like larger OEMs in the space, you know, beyond big four, like look at, look at all the OEMs, they have some sort of startup or innovation, like external innovation approach. What are your thoughts on kind of just where these partnerships and acquisitions are leading to value today and kind of Mm -hmm. what is Schneider's approach to that, to that world? I guess, firstly, personal point of view, the market and the demand for digital transformation is so huge and growing that the market is big enough for players of all sizes and needs players of all sizes. Large infrastructure projects need big players that can take on the risk, the complexity, the, you know, onerous compliance obligations. And there's, you know, definitely a role for, for you know, startups. And, and I think that the ecosystem as a whole can support, you know, all layers of business. In terms of our approach to innovation, acquisitions, buy and build, it's not a one-size-fits-all approach. So, you know, innovation is, I mean, if you were to say simple, simply it's change that adds value, right, to the customer, to the business, or and there's a lot of different ways to achieve that. Sometimes it's through partnership. Technology moves quickly. Big companies don't always have time to build their own. And having a partnership with a, you know, software vendor or an analytics vendor or a piece of AI can actually help us get there more quickly, which is good for our customers. There are times when it makes sense to build and building graph, and that's what um, we're doing with building graph and building out that, you know, data graph layer. And there's times when it makes sense to acquire. And then if you do acquire that, if you do acquire software, how does that become integrated with your company. Most typically, the software acquisitions that Schneider Electric makes remain as independent software vehicles. So retain their branding, retain their own organisation, sit outside our organisation, have their own leadership, have their own board, because we do understand that software needs to be hardware agnostic and we want our software companies to be able to you know work across uh, multiple sites so that would be one aspect I guess when we look at acquisitions and then I think you know you sometimes hear a bit of criticism or cynicism in the um, market about bigger companies acquiring uh, smaller companies or taking partnerships and what that means but ultimately If we look at it from a customer lens, generally I think it's better for the customer because the customer is getting a de-risk solution. So they're getting that same offer with a much bigger backing Mm. um, and there's less risk of that technology becoming obsolete or not being supported or like they've got someone, you know, bigger than than that small company to, to lean on. And then from the vendors point of view you know a lot of the software founders I've met and I've talked to you know tons over the years they're looking for partnerships they're looking to be acquired or invested in um, and 
the reason for that, it's win-win. Firstly, it gives security for them and their employee base. Secondly, it's access to customers and markets, right? So it's another channel to support customers. And, and the best acquisitions, I think, are when you've got complementary customer sets. So if we're a big organisation that has large enterprise customers, maybe mostly private, and then there's, you know, uh, a company that has more exposure to government-type contracts, well, you know, what a great opportunity to, to introduce each other to um, each other's mm-hmm. customer space. Yeah. Okay, so you mentioned building, building Graph a couple of times. I didn't actually realize that that was a product that you guys were developing until mm-hmm. that last answer there. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about what that product is? Because I just I'm curious from a, from a um, uh, okay. understanding the marketplace. Okay, so there's some information publicly available in terms of press releases, but basically Building Graph is a new building operating system with a data platform. So rather than having, you know, point-to-point APIs and integrations, it's creating this data graph and data platform that will enable the ability to have easy, much easier linking and connecting data across various systems and IoT devices. So it is that layer above. So if you think about the building system layer Mm-hmm. You've then got the graph layer and then you've got all of your apps and software and things that sit across. And then into the graph, you can also have external data sources that might be used for AI, such as, you know, weather or occupancy data or, you know, things like that. And all of your geospatial data as well. Got it. Yeah. So we talk a lot about independent data layer, that concept, that acronym. We don't need more acronyms in the industry, but that's one that we've... Uh, definitely chosen here in the Nexus community. So, so that would be another type of independent data layer software. That's really interesting. I mean, it's a great fit for you guys to develop that with all the different lines of business and products that you guys have. Mm-hmm. And that's come about through um, actual projects and you know, realizing the opportunity and working with uh, our customers and understanding that we can actually create something that is scalable across our organization globally. Got it. Well, Louise, this has been awesome. Do you want to close out with a a carve out? So uh, a book, movie, TV show, podcast, or other sort of link that we can share with the audience could be personal or or work-related. Okay. So podcasts, I listen to a lot. Um, Pivot would be the one I listen to most regularly, which is a podcast out of the mostly technology uh, related, but kind of big tech. And okay. I really enjoy the hosts have great chemistry, but I really Kara enjoy, Swisher and yeah, um, Scott Galloway. Scott Galloway. Okay. Yeah. And I like his other podcasts, Prof G and okay. just how he looks at buildings, how he looks at companies and markets and you know where opportunities are for companies to evolve. Okay. The other one I'm enjoying at the moment is We Crashed, which is on mm. TV, which is the WeWork show. The acting's great, but you know, it is it is good to follow along there. And I read the book The Rise of We a couple of months ago, but just interesting look at, you know, evaluations of, of companies and startups and, and how that can get out of control. So there's a lot totally. of lessons to take out of that. Totally. Okay. I'm two episodes into We Crashed. Um, it's very, very cringe, cringeworthy. I'm a person that doesn't like awkward situations and that show <laughs> makes me cringe quite a bit. Um yeah, so I think what I'll share those are those are great. By the way, I love I love Professor G. Uh, he's got a great newsletter. Um, I love his hot takes. He just like goes for it. Um, doesn't matter who he offends. He just yeah. all, he's all in. Um, so I, I'll actually change mine. So I'm a member of the Section Four uh, membership, and Section Four is Scott Galloway's company, education company, and they do these little sprints. So there are two or three week courses um, and I've taken one so far and I have one that starts next week on platform strategy. I took another one called product strategy. So they maybe have eight or 10 or something like that of these two week sprints, very similar to our foundations course in that it's a live cohort and you watch videos on your own. Um, but they're really great courses and a really great, great community in terms of understanding where technology is headed. Um, and so probably a lot of the same topics they're talking about on that podcast, 
they're actually teaching the sort of the frameworks underlying a lot of these different, you know, big, huge mega trends in technology. So I'm really excited to start that next week. I don't know where I'm going to find the time, but I'm going to learn all about platform uh, products next week. Cool. Yeah. Well, thanks so much uh, for, for coming on the show. This is really fun. And I'll, I'll let you get back to the rest of your day. Awesome. Thanks for having me, James. All right, friends. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Nexus Podcast. For more episodes like this and to get the weekly Nexus newsletter, which, by the way, readers have said is the best way to stay up to date on the future of the smart building industry, please subscribe at nexuslabs.online. You can find the show notes for this conversation there as well. Have a great day. Thank you.